Well, happy Resurrection Weekend to all of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you here at Central Campus in various rooms in this place, along with others of you who are meeting, uh, meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie and Bridgeland and Bearspaw and South Calgary. Now, you know, um, we often eat way too much. Uh, during Christmas and Easter, and we especially eat way too much junk food. Is that not true? And even though research clearly, clearly points out that junk food is not good for you, there is quite a bit of controversy and confusion in the medical and nutritional world about whether a high-fat diet is good for you. The Japanese, for example, eat very little fat and have fewer heart problems than the British, the Americans, and us Canadians. Now that makes sense until you realize the French, they eat a lot of fat, yet they too have fewer problems, heart-related problems, than the British, Americans, and Canadians. We know the Italians and the Germans well, they love their pasta and their sausages, yet they also have fewer heart problems than the British, the Americans, and us Canadians. And so the final word is, eat as much fatty foods as you would like. <laughs> Apparently, the problem is, and what kills you is speaking English. Now, I told that joke because I want to see you smile at least once before I get into the message for today. <laughs> for you see, what I'm talking about today is serious stuff that could impact the trajectory not only of your life, but your future and your eternity. Some time ago, a young man said to me, you know, if Jesus would just appear to me personally, I'd believe in him. If Jesus would just hover a few hundred feet above the Calgary Tower for news cameras to capture and for all people to see, or if he'd perform an undeniable miracle in front of me, I'd become a full-fledged follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, he said, I'm convinced everyone who witnessed miracles like this would believe in him. I responded saying, I'm sure some would believe, but I doubt the majority would. And he shot back, well, how can you be so sure? And I said, because 2,000 years ago, Jesus, God the Son, did come down to earth. He performed miracles all over ancient Israel that left people speechless and in awe of him. And yes, some believed and followed him, but others were skeptical of him and ultimately decided to reject him and cry, crucify him. And even though times have changed and culture has changed, the reality is human nature and human skepticism hasn't changed over the last 2,000 years. In fact, I think it would be safe to say that as knowledge and technology have increased, so has our level of skepticism and self-sufficiency. 
Take the resurrection of Jesus Christ as an example. Most people accept the well-documented historical record that Jesus was a real person who lived 2,000 years ago, who taught profound truths, did wonderful works, and was crucified. However, many people do not accept the resurrection of Jesus as being true, even though there were many people in that day who personally saw or met the risen Christ. The resurrected Christ appeared not only to his disciples and followers, but he also uh, appeared to more than 500 people all at the same time, and over 10,000 people, mostly Jews, became followers of Jesus a short time after his resurrection. The fact that the disciples were willing to die for their faith in Christ and the fact that thousands walked away from their religion virtually overnight in order to follow Christ and were prepared to be excommunicated not only by their faith community but also their families for doing so and in in, in many cases, were willing to die for their faith in Christ. All of that is powerful evidence that they either encountered the risen Christ personally or they knew someone that they trusted who did. But you see, even though most people today will accept the classical eyewitness method of recording history and accept as a fact of history Events like, for example, the destruction of the World Trade Centers in 2001 or the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963 and the assassination of Abraham Lincoln in 1867 and Julius Caesar in 44 BC. These same people who believe the events that I just mentioned are historical fact based on eyewitness accounts, will not accept as fact the eyewitness accounts for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all of the other compelling evidence for his resurrection. Why is that? Because they have a worldview that rejects the supernatural, such as dead people coming back to life. You see, willful unbelief will always find a way to reject the truth, even to the point of denying the undeniable. Now this is not only true today. It was also true in Jesus' day. For example, we see willful unbelief displayed in the lives of the Jewish religious believers, and in particular, Caiaphas, the high priest. God tried to get Caiaphas's attention on numerous occasions by providing him indisputable evidence that Jesus, whom he met and saw, that Jesus is divine, God the Son. In Matthew 26, verse 3, we read that two days before the Jewish Passover, the chief priests and the elders of the people, they assembled in the residence of the high priest Caiaphas for the purpose of making plans 
to arrest Jesus. They were plotting against him because they were becoming increasingly uncomfortable, not only with his teachings, but particularly with his popularity with the people. They saw Jesus not only as a threat to their religion, but to their position and status. They didn't have any legitimate evidence to convict Jesus, but they proceeded to arrest him anyways, and they tried to convict him by using false witnesses. But that didn't work because every story was different, which is what happens when you use false witnesses. And so finally, Caiaphas took charge of the proceedings. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 61, Caiaphas flat out asked Jesus this question. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus replied, I am. And the passage goes on to say that when Caiaphas and company heard this, they accused Jesus of blasphemy and they condemned him as worthy of death. You see, Jesus left no doubt about who he was. He clearly stated he was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so Caiaphas and company had a decision to make about him. They could believe Jesus, embrace him as their Lord and Messiah, or they could reject him and his claims. And you, say, and you see, each of us must make up our mind about Jesus as well. And at the end of this service, you're going to be given an opportunity to decide what you will do with Jesus. Now make no mistake, Caiaphas and the religious leaders, they did not reject Jesus because of insufficient evidence to believe. No, as we're going to see in a moment, in addition to hearing Jesus just flat out say that he was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, God gave these religious leaders a number of wake-up calls. For example, in John chapter 9, we read of a time when Jesus healed a man who was blind from birth. Now everyone in the area, they knew this man because he spent most of his days begging for money down at the town square. And so when they saw him walking around suddenly and able to see, everyone was extremely surprised and curious. I mean, wouldn't you be? Well, when the religious leaders heard about his healing, they invited him over for tea and asked him to explain how he could now see. And he replied, the man they called Jesus did it. Well, they didn't like that answer. And so they brought in his parents and they asked, is, is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? And the parents said, yes, he's our son and yes, he was born blind. While the answers they got did not line up with their preferred narrative. And so the religious leaders sent them on their way. You see, despite all of their efforts to deny the undeniable, the religious leaders couldn't discredit him because right in front of them 
was a formerly blind man who said, I was blind, but now I see. And Jesus is the one who healed me. End of story. Now, we don't know whether Caiaphas was actually there. But you can be sure he heard about it firsthand from people that he trusted. And undoubtedly, this wasn't the only miracle that Caiaphas heard about, which only served to agitate him all the more and to orchestrate Jesus' demise. You see, God was extending a wake-up call to Caiaphas and his company of religious leaders. But their stubborn unbelief kept them from hearing it. And so, as I mentioned a moment ago, Caiaphas and company began to plot the death of Jesus. And yet, because of his amazing grace and love for them, God used even their sinister plans to give them yet another wake-up call. We read about it in Matthew 26, verse 36. See, God was extending a wake-up call to Caiaphas and his company of religious leaders, but their stubborn unbelief kept them from hearing it. And after having what is now referred to as the Last Supper together, Jesus invited his disciples to join him to pray at a place called Gethsemane at the foot of the Mount of Olives. The late Fred Craddock makes the interesting observation that in this account of Jesus' arrest, we are given an unusual amount of details. For example, he says, we know when Jesus was arrested. It was at night, likely Thursday night. We know who was with him. All the disciples were except Judas, who would soon show up with those who wanted to arrest Jesus. We know who came with Judas. Nearly 200 people, including Roman soldiers and temple police representing Caiaphas and the chief priests. We know how they came. They came with torches, weapons, swords, and clubs. All this to arrest a preacher, which reveals how much they feared Jesus and his power. And of course, we know what Peter did. He pulled out his sword and he struck a man. And we know what he struck, the man's right ear. You see, using a sword wasn't Peter's greatest talent. And most significantly, we also know who it was that Peter struck. It was Malchus. And guess who Malchus was? He was a servant of Caiaphas. Now that's significant. Because if you ever thought about how many important people in the Bible whose names we are not given, I mean, we're not told the name of the Good Samaritan. We're not told of the name of the rich young ruler. We're not told the names of the thieves on the crosses next to Jesus. And neither are we told the name 
of the centurion who after Jesus died and after experiencing the earthquake and darkness in the middle of the day exclaimed, surely this was the Son of God. And yet we know who it was who lost an ear because of Peter's poor aim. Of course, we don't know why Malchus's name was included in Scripture, but could, it, could the reason be, or at least one of the reasons be, to remind us of God's grace and how, yet again, God sent a wake-up call to Caiaphas? For you see, verse 57 tells us, after Jesus was arrested, they went to Caiaphas, the high priest. Craddock says, picture the scene. Caiaphas is anxiously waiting for his temple police to come back and tell him whether they arrested Jesus. They finally return, and Caiaphas says, so how did it go? And somebody says, oh, it went real well. We got him. And Caiaphas says, did you have any trouble getting him? And someone responds, not really, just a little. And he says, what do you mean, just a little? And they all turn and look at Malchus. Well, Malchus had a little problem. And Caiaphas turns to his servant, Malchus, what's the problem? And Malchus looks up and says, well, sir, it's my ear. Caiaphas says, well, what about your ear? Malchus says, well, sir, one of his disciples pulled a sword and cut off my ear. And Caiaphas approaches Malchus to have a closer look. And he says, well, that can't be. I mean, they're both on right now. And Malchus says, yeah, I know. That's the problem, sir. Caiaphas says, what do you mean? Malchus says, well, this fellow that we arrested, this Jesus, he reached down and he picked my ear out of the dirt and he put it back on. He restored it, sir. It's perfectly well. And we don't know whether Malchus actually said it, but I'm pretty sure he was thinking, sir, don't, do you really think we arrested the right man tonight? And right before his eyes, Caiaphas receives a wake-up call from God. For the rest of his life, think about it. Every time Caiaphas looked at Malchus, that right ear, like a flashing neon light, would serve as a reminder of Jesus and his divine power. And yet, despite what he witnessed firsthand, Caiaphas ignored what he knew to be true, what everyone that night knew to be true. Caiaphas and company refused to believe. And then with the help of the Romans, they pushed on and made sure that Jesus was crucified the next day. But God still, in his mercy, doesn't give up on Caiaphas. 
we see at least one more time in the scriptures that he sends him a wake-up call. We read about it in Matthew 27, verse 62. Immediately after the body of Christ was put in the tomb, the chief priests, under orders from Caiaphas, they went to Pilate and they, they, they requested that an official government seal be placed over the stone in front of Jesus' tomb and that a guard be posted to ensure there would be no fake resurrection. But neither Caiaphas, the religious leaders, or the soldiers who guarded the tomb that night had any idea what kind of a wake-up call they would receive the next day. The Bible says the next morning there was a violent earthquake. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. The guards were there. And they were so afraid, it says they shook and became like dead men. And the angel told two women who had just arrived about then that Jesus was not there, that he had risen just as he said. Now upon hearing this, the guards immediately knew that they would be executed for failing to successfully guard the tomb. And so instead of going to their Roman superior, they went to Caiaphas and the chief priest telling them everything that happened. And I'm sure that they were desperately hoping that by telling Caiaphas what they witnessed, he would somehow save them and the fate that awaited them. And God in his sovereignty used the guards' testimony to issue yet another wake-up call to Caiaphas and co company. Once again, Caiaphas heard a first-hand account of an incredible miracle, in fact, the greatest miracle of history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet, what does Caiaphas do? Even though he knows better, his stubborn unbelief kicks in and he devises a plan, a sheer fabrication that includes paying off the soldiers to be quiet and to say that Jesus' disciples somehow overpowered a well-equipped Roman squadron and stole the body of Christ. Now think about the plausibility of that. When Jesus was arrested, do you remember what the disciples did shortly thereafter? Well, they ran away and they hid like frightened little children. That's why Caiaphas' fabricated story just doesn't add up because the idea that the disciples stole Christ's body says that these cowardly men suddenly got a backbone and overpowered a squadron of soldiers and stole the body of Christ. Not a chance. You know, the late Chuck Colson, who was one of the right-hand men to then-President Richard Nixon. Um, he writes that his experience in a scandal that happened back in 1972 called the Watergate scandal convinced him 
of the historic proof of the resurrection. He writes, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 disciples testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for over 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. And you're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. You see, people will die for something they know or believe to be true, but will never die for something they know is a lie. The reality is Caiaphas and company and the soldiers knew what the truth really was. They had received another amazing wake-up call, but they marched on ignoring the truth about Christ. Now here's the thing. We read this and we think, come on Caiaphas, how much more evidence do you need? And as you've been listening, I'm sure many of you have been thinking, I mean, if I had that kind of evidence, I'd believe. I mean, I'd be all in. Well, that may be. But remember, God hasn't stopped issuing wake-up calls. He continues trying to get our attention by giving all of us wake-up calls today. Here are some of the ways that God does that today. One way God issues wake-up calls is through his creation. As as astronomer investigates and experiences the beauty, the incredible complexity and vastness and order and design of the universe, suddenly he or she wakes up to God's reality and creative power. You know, it's no accident that over 90% of astronomers today believe in God. To say that such a well-precisioned universe just happened is about as credible as believing that a Boeing 747 was accidentally assembled when a tornado swept through a junkyard. Romans 1 verse 20 says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. But God's wake-up calls aren't limited to astronomers. A father holds his newborn child for the first time And as he touches the tiny fingers that are curled around his and marvels at how wonderfully formed this little baby is, the image of two, an absolute miracle, he suddenly wakes up to the reality and the creative power of God. 
as a physician or a geneticist begins to understand the incredible design and complexity of the human body, like the amazing life-giving giving function of red blood cells, the marvel of our eyes which are in 3D color and far more complex than any camera ever made, or the marvel of our brains which are greater and more complex than any computer on earth, or the complexity of our DNA coding which tells each cell in our body exactly how to develop, including our height, our hair color, the skeletal arrangement of 206 bones, 600 muscles, 10,000 auditory nerve fibers, 2 million optic nerve fibers, 100 billion nerve cells, and get this, 122 billion meters of blood vessels and capillaries. As they begin to take all of this in, and if they honestly face the facts and humble themselves, suddenly they awake to the creative power and the wonder and the awesomeness of God. In short, God's fingerprints are all over his creation. And if you're not seeing the miracles that he performs every day, like every heartbeat in your chest, every breath you take, every day you live, every sunrise and every life that has been radically transformed by the living Christ, then I ask you, could it be that like Caiaphas, you're covering your ears to God's wake-up calls? And then secondly, sometimes God issues a wake-up call through hardships. In John 16, Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. In other words, hardships are a reality of life in a broken world. There's going to come a time when the phone is going to ring and what is said on the other end is going to change your life forever. Some of you will receive a medical report that will change everything. Others of you will have papers served to you that will make you feel like you've been kicked in the stomach. Still others will receive a call about your child that will shake you to the core. Now even though God isn't necessarily the author of crisis, he may allow hardship to accomplish his good purposes in our lives. Romans 8.28 says that if we love God and if we trust him, he will use everything that comes our way, the good, the bad, and even the ugly, for our ultimate good. Some people, when they suffer hardship and loss, they get angry with God. They want nothing to do with him. They don't even want to talk about him. They wonder how a loving God could do this to them or allow it to happen. That's a tough question that can't be explained with a short answer. But perhaps an illustration will help not to minimize the pain of loss and suffering, 
but perhaps to help us understand God's perspective in all this. Many years ago now, one of our sons, who was four at the time, he fell and hit his head hard against the wall. 30 minutes later, he began to throw up. We immediately suspected a concussion, and so I took him to Children's Hospital. Gwen stayed at home with the other boys. The medical team there recommended that they do a scan, but because of his age, they told me it's going to require that they strap him down so he wouldn't move. And it would also require me to leave the room. While when I began to leave, he began to wail. And as our eyes met for just a moment, he seemed to be saying to me, Daddy, how can you leave me here and allow these strangers to torture me? I thought you loved me. I thought you would never leave me or forsake me. And as I stood outside the door and I heard him scream, my eyes began to water up. And I thought to myself, how I wish he could understand that I and the medical team, we have his best interests at heart. That there is a good purpose for the separation and the trauma that he's experiencing. And as much as I hated him having to go through this, I knew it was for his ultimate good. You see, he was focused on the moment in time. I was focused on the big picture. Even though he didn't understand, out of love and concern for him, I allowed this trauma to occur in his life for about 15 minutes because I wanted him to live longer than four years. Well, that's a picture of God's love for us. And also how he sees our times of hardship and suffering. He does not delight in it. His heart breaks over it. In fact, he never intended for there to be suffering. When he first created our planet and our first parents, Adam and Eve. Our world is broken because Adam and Eve and all of us since then have gone our own way. We've rejected him. We've turned our back on him. We've said, I'm doing this my way. But you see, God loves us too much to leave us there. Like any loving father, he wants what is best for us. His concern for us isn't limited to just the time we live here on this earth. No, his ultimate concern is that we would not be separated from him for all of eternity. And friends, that is forever. And don't forget, to God, a hundred years in this life is less than a heartbeat in relation to the gazillion years of eternity. And so if facing hardship and loss for a heartbeat of time in relation to eternity means that we will wake up to God's reality, if it means that we will realize that he wants to know us, to be our friend, to walk with us, give us wisdom and power to live in victory in this life and to spend forever with him 
in eternity, then he, he may allow hardships to come our way. Even as I, for good reason, allowed our four-year-old to face 15 minutes of trauma. See, God made a way through Jesus' death and resurrection for us to be his friend. But God is a gentleman. He won't force you to love him back. He won't force you to put your trust in him and to follow him as Lord. Instead, he tries to get our attention by sending us wake-up calls. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes it isn't until we're in the middle of a crisis that our pride begins to dissolve, that our feelings of invincibility begin to fade, that our false sense of security begins to crumble. And perhaps for the first time in our lives, we are quiet and still long enough to look inward and then to look heavenward. I'm sure some of you have gone through a major hardship of some kind. Others of you are going through a crisis right now. Have you ever wondered if there could be a reason behind that crisis that you're experiencing? May I respectfully suggest it is possible, not always, but sometimes, that God is allowing this to get your attention about something? The question is, have you been listening? Have you been responding? Or have you been ignoring him and rationalizing things like Caiaphas did? Make no mistake, you may avoid God's wake-up calls, his attempts to reach out to you, but a day is coming when we will all stand before God. And even though we don't have a really clear picture of what judgment day will be like and how it's all going to play out based on the imagery that we read about in Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10, I believe that God's going to review the wake-up calls that he sent to us and the decisions that we made, particularly the decisions we made concerning Jesus Christ. And God is going to remind people of the wake-up calls that he issued to them. And he's going to say things like, I sent you a wake-up call about the brevity of life the day your best friend died. I sent you a wake-up call September 11th, 2001. I sent you a wake-up call the time that your chest tightened up and you could hardly breathe and you came ever so close to breathing your last. I sent you a wake-up call the day that your daughter was bucked off her horse and nearly died. I sent you a wake-up call during the climax of Handel's Messiah. As you were in tears and lost in the ecstasy of that incredible music and yet the words seemed to escape you. King of kings, 
Lord of Lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. I sent you a wake-up call through that person at work who radiated genuine joy and peace, lived a life of integrity, generosity, and unselfish service to others, and talked about their relationship with Jesus like they just had breakfast with him that morning. That person really impacted you and made you curious about Jesus that they believed in and lived for but you never pursued it. And maybe, just maybe, God is sending you a wake-up call right now through this service and this message. And as we are reminded on Judgment Day of all the ways that God tried to get our attention, tried to wake us up to know Him and to trust Him, we're going to realize that we are without excuse. Some people are going to realize they were too preoccupied, too self-assured, too much in love with earthly success, the temporary things and pleasures of life, too concerned what their friends, their family might think, or too proud, too set in their ways to stop and acknowledge what they knew deep down inside. And that is our need for God. In that moment, they're going to realize that Jesus didn't turn his back on them, but they turned their back on him. And that they got exactly what they wanted, a life without God. But you see, that doesn't have to be your story. I remind you that God loves you more than you will ever know. You matter so much to him that he allowed his only son, Jesus, to be arrested, crucified for crimes he never committed in order to take the punishment of your sin and my sin. And he did all that. He suffered all that to make a way for you and me to become a friend of God now and forever. Jesus died for us. But he also conquered death. And because he lives, we too shall live with him forever if we put our trust in him. The power that raised him from the grave is available not only to save you from being eternally separated from God, but also for whatever concerns you today. And right now, his arms are outstretched to you. And he's calling you to come home. He's saying, please don't keep rejecting me. Please don't keep ignoring my attempts to get your attention through wake-up calls. Come home to me, and I will give you true rest for your soul. Won't you put your trust in him? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.
this is a sacred moment because I believe that you're not here by accident. You're here because God wants to get your attention and to say to you, you matter to me. I've been pursuing you all of my life, all of your life. If you're not sure where you will be the moments after you die, if you would have to admit that deep down inside there's an emptiness, there's a loneliness, there's a craving that nothing in this world seems to satisfy. If you are uncertain what the meaning, the purpose of your life is, you need Jesus in your life. As you get to know him, he's going to give you a peace and a joy. He's going to give you purpose and direction for your life. And he's going to satisfy your deepest longings. If you'd like to begin a friendship with Jesus, I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer not unlike I prayed many years ago that changed the entire trajectory of my life. You can pray it out loud or you can pray it silently because God knows your thoughts. He knows the state of your heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for pursuing me all my life and for sending me wake-up calls. And Jesus, thank you for your amazing love for me, for dying in my place and paying the penalty for my sin. Please forgive me for my sins. I want to put the past behind and start following you from this moment forward. Come into my life. Live your life through me. I praise you, Jesus, for conquering death because that proves that you're God, that your claims, your teachings, and your promises are true. Because you live, I'm putting my total trust in you, and I'm committing myself to following you as Lord. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you know, if you prayed that prayer, and you meant it, of course, the Bible says a miracle is really taken place in the spiritual realm. You are now a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. Your sins, your regrets, all of that is gone. It's been placed on Jesus who died for that very reason. And Jesus' perfect righteousness has been placed on you, making you new, clean, and righteous before him. I challenge you to believe that and live out this truth in your life to the glory of God. And then just a word to those who are Christ followers here. What has God been saying to you? And what is he calling you to do? How sensitive have you been to his wake-up calls and his promptings to follow and obey him? Is Jesus alive in you? You may believe he's alive, but do you realize he's in you? Is he alive in you? Are you allowing him to be alive in you? Or are you living like he's still in the tomb?
if your heart is cooled toward the Lord, if your life has drifted from God, if your life has become spiritually lethargic, you want to come back to the Lord, tell him your desire to do that right now. Just join me in this short prayer. Father, thank you for the wake-up call today. I'm coming back home. I'm fed up trying to do it my way. I'm tired of blaming others for my attitude and my choices. Forgive me for seeking after the temporary so much more than you and the eternal. For seeking the applause of others rather than just pleasing you. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit and live your life of victory through me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you're online and you prayed one of those prayers with me, please click the I Said Yes link on your screen. For those of you who are here at Central Campus, and also, of course, those of you in the other campuses, in the seat back in front of you is a little red card that has the words, God, the God who conquers. Please fill it out and check one of the boxes um, that best describes the decision or the decisions you made today. If you have a special prayer request, please write it in the space that's provided right on that card. And our staff, as you heard earlier, will and our prayer warriors of our church will take these requests to God in prayer. And then as you leave, please put your response card in one of the containers by each exit on your way out of the worship center. So I want you to just take a moment right now and complete the response card as the worship team comes to lead us in our closing song.